everyone. This is Nick Castle, better known as The Shape. And you are listening to the Nightmare Junkhead Podcast. And Greg, I'm right out your window. and out of your consciousness like a bad dream you can't wake from, this is the Nightmare Junkhead Podcast, a horror podcast that doesn't always drink beer, but when we do, we drink Moosehead. My name is Greg D. I'm Genius McGee. And on today's episode, we're delving even deeper into the mouth of March Madness as we welcome the classic Horrors Club and the Cadaver Cast as they help us break down the surviving horror classics from our 1981 bracket. And you don't have to be hospitalized to listen into our show. Simply search for Nightmare Junkhead wherever podcasts are played. Hit subscribe, and when we drop our latest episode, we'll download directly to your listening device of choice. All up in your long sleeve velour polo hole. <laughs> of course, if you happen to be out on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Nightmare Junk and on Facebook at Nightmare Junkhead. And of course, it is on the Book of Face where we have an events tab, which again leads to shenanigans and cyber shenanigans. And as this episode is releasing on Friday, March 9th, let's just say this. We don't know what the fuck is going on. We know we're going to be doing something for a Friday Night Fright. Uh huh. <laughs> we know there are going to be plenty of genre options at Screenland. But right now, we're focused on the madness. We are recording so far in advance. We just know look at the events tab, you'll find out what's going on. But more importantly, they're on all social media. We have our bracket, because without the bracket... How are you going to play along? You cannot play along, and trust me, at this point, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that are screaming at us for what happened in the first round of 1981. Oh, yeah. They don't want to join us anymore. <laughs> no, they do not. But as we go into the round of the Scream 16, we do th change things a bit, because you know what? In the first round, all the blame is on us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now we need... Um, other, more scapegoats. We need more scapegoats. We need no. Don't get mad at us. Send them hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> and as we go into the round of the Scream 16 and Hateful Eight, we do like to bring in some of our favorite people from some of our favorite podcasts. And I'm not going to lie. Last year, Genius Into the Mouth of March Madness was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Everything played great. There was something missing. Something just felt a little something off. Something was missing. Well, thankfully, I realized we are totally course correcting here because if we're if we are in the seventies or early eighties, I'm thinking classy. I'm thinking classic, and thankfully, ah, mm -hmm. to bring us some normalcy back into the madness. Please welcome back to Nightmare Junkhead and into the mouth of March Madness from the Classics Horror Clubs podcast, Jeff Owens and Rich Chamberlain. Hey guys, you you misspoke just a bit. Two words are very similar, but I think I heard classy in there. Classic, <laughs> I'll take. I'm not so sure about the classy. Yeah, we don't do classy much. Oh, <laughs> our classy's a little our is Cronenberg classy. Well, that's why we like to invite people to class the joint up a little bit, even if it is classic or classy. Mm -hmm. But before we truly start classing things up, tell our listeners where can they find you all out on social media? Please plug and promote away. Richard, I will go ahead and take it first. Um, you know, I'm still doing the two blogs. The main one is uh, kccinephile.com. That's where you can find everything I do from horror movies to Laurel and Hardy. So uh, and everything in between, old time radio. Um, and then, of course, the Strictly Monster stuff is on Monster Movie Kid, 
www.wordpress.com. Uh, various podcast appearances. I have a monthly segment called the Kansas City Crypt, where I do uh, classic horror movies, and it's over at the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. Uh, Christopher Mim and his Mimiverse films, he has a monthly podcast, and so I've been doing the Kansas City Crypt uh, for a while now. I think I started, uh, trying to think, a couple years ago. So I've um, been doing that. Um, the occasional segment over at the Dread Media podcast, uh, whenever I run across a movie, usually it's some crazy film over at Joe Bob, uh, you know, strikes my <laughs> fancy. And so I've decided I need to talk about it. Baby doesn't um, walk. And then, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Classic Horrors Club podcast that uh, Jeff and I have continued to crank out uh, monthly. And we did a couple of bi-monthly months in the fall to kind of get to our big 50th episode anniversary. So ah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And as we're, I guess as we're recording this, we're, we're kind of celebrating our, what, four year anniversary. Yeah. I guess guess we didn't think about, I think we recorded a week ago. I don't know if we talked about that, but I don't think think so. Not much has changed in the last couple of years. I still don't know our Facebook address or Twitter (laughs) handle or anything. Search for classic horse club and you find it. But I do want to share that we are doing something new that we just started uh, in October for our 50th episode. We're now doing a, video companion on youtube so it's highlights and bonus features we say but uh, we've had a lot of fun with that so far and people wanted us to you know post the podcast on youtube as another avenue for listening and it just doesn't jive with me that you would listen to a podcast on youtube so i thought well let's create a little uh, video companion and that that's been a lot of fun which is usually Jeff catching me in some goofy expression, and that seems to be the, uh, you know, the clip that he shows. So hey, I own it. I'm good with it. All I'm holding out is for some Cannonball Run esque edits in your credits and some, you know, goofs and gaffs. Yeah. I, you know, he did a really cool one in November. We did silent movies, and so it was silent. Um, he actually added title cards, and uh, it was it, it was genius. Yeah, nice. it was it was a lot of fun. Quick question. I know you guys deal more with the classic horror movies, but is there something recently that you both have seen that you're like, okay, that probably will go down as a classic? Man, I am so behind with recent stuff. It's just not going to theaters. I'm all discombobulated. I don't know what's coming out when. I'll catch something new on Shudder now and then, and I'll read about something, but then I forget. I'm I'm just really out of touch. I mean, I'm finding my... Future classics like on Netflix with shows like The Haunting and uh, and things like that. I don't know, Richard. Have you found anything this year? Yeah, there's a few things that I saw in Shutter in the last year. Um, I guess maybe not new because I guess it goes back to 2019. But uh, Colorado Space, Nick Cage movie. I really dug that. You know, I know some people loved it, some people didn't. Uh, And Nick Cage, you never know what you're going to get, but. (laughs) I, I think that's a movie that'll that'll uh, wear well over time. I'm also really loving the Creep Show series. Yeah. Um, on Shutter, um, especially the the last couple of holiday ones they did, the animated one, um, and then the uh, the Christmas one they did was just something fun. You know, you don't expect those things to pop up. So, um, and I guess you know, it, then the other end of the extreme is. Uh, the, the quote new film that Joe Bob unearthed the Hogzilla that was the unfinished film that 
saw the light of day last year. That's a movie that probably should have stayed buried. I don't know if you guys <laughs> had a chance to see that, but uh, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. And you know, being inside all the time, I used to listen to podcasts when I was on the road. So I am so far behind. I'm sure, and I'll, I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm way behind on Nightmare Junkhead, but I assume you guys have been talking about some of the newer movies. And had I been caught up, maybe I'd be a little more knowledgeable about them. Well, maybe you guys would be down with the last one we just did for the Shutter shout out, The Pit. Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know it's it's <laughs> it's interesting. No, I think the one. Listen, I totally went classic this uh, this year. In fact, my whole thing was trying to seek out films I've never seen before and pushing myself just in terms of a discipline to not go back on YouTube and watch something for the millionth time or go back and watch Return of the Living Dead for the millionth time. So I've been kind of filling in my gaps, but one of the standout screenings for me this year was I had a chance to see Carnival of Souls for the first time. Oh, yeah. That... I saw that probably about four months ago, and there are still bits of it that is staying with me. Um, just the cinematography, just how scary it is, just the the, the ooey and gooeyness of that friggin' neighbor. That guy was just horrible in that movie. Um, had a chance to see, I know this is not a horror film, but North by Northwest for the first time. Mm. Which, oh my God, so good. I thought you were going to say White Christmas, then I was going to apologize again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, White Christmas was also very interesting. Now, you would have had to apologize if I would have seen Christmas in Connecticut, because that's where I believe the the C. Thomas Howell portion goes into effect. Yeah. <laughs> but, so is that, does a, the state of new movies have anything to do with that, or just you wanted your equal share of new and classic? Trying to find a balance. That's, okay. that's the key, because I saw some films this year for that were some new releases that I think will be we'll still be talking many moons down. If you have not seen it, I can't recommend Relic enough. Okay. Bring Kleenex. Yes. Bring a lot of Kleenex. Context for your tears. Yeah. I bawled so hard at that movie. And wow. even like when doing the best of 2020s list, I went back and watched a lot of the movies except Relic. Cause I was like, I know that that's just going to fuck me up. So no, I can't recommend that movie high enough. So, yeah, it's it's what are your guys' thoughts on uh, Grizzly 2 finally seeing the light of day. I'm excited. I'll, I, I'm down for a good bad movie. I want to see because the first Grizzly was fun as fuck. And like, so let's see what they do with part two. The Grizzlier, you know, I think <laughs> we live in an amazing age when movies like that not only are unearthed, but are going to get this like deluxe Blu ray treatment where you're going to get some like extra features. People are paying money for this, it's incredible. What's that movie we saw with? With Buck Flowers and uh, League of Their Own. Oh, uh, uh, Deadly... No, not Deadly Games. Savage Games. Savage Games. We, we they, Well, it's a Vinegar Syndrome title, so that might tell you everything you need to know. It does. <laughs> <laughs> but no, thankfully, uh, not only have we seen a number of classic flicks, but here in the year of 1981, we saw some amazing movies. In fact, that we've even you know put in through Patreon and what have you, but only... Four have survived at this point, and only two can go forward to the next round. And that's where we all come into play here. And I'm anxious to hear your all's thoughts, especially the fact that we've got an alumni here, technically, in their first little matchup here. And the first one we're going to go into is Halloween 2 going up against an American werewolf in London. Uh, Jeff Rich, which one of these do we talk about first? 
let's go alphabetical. American Werewolf. Okay, and I'm going to throw it all in your court. Let me ask you, because you guys are my, my, my veterans here, by any chance, did you see it during its original theatrical run? I did. And this is my emotional attachment to this movie is I saw it the Friday night on my way to college my freshman year. Wow. If my parents, which was a little odd, but, you know, we spent the night in Kansas City on our way and watched it. And I'll tell you, I've never really liked this film. Uh, I haven't seen it very many times over the years. I, I have that, you know, attachment of seeing it, but not to the movie itself. I was grateful for the opportunity to revisit it to, for this because I kind of loved it. Oh, uh, but nice. something about it originally. And I think it was the chaos of the scene um, in Piccadilly Circus, just with the cars hitting and the guy getting his head run over. That was just too much for me at that time. And I thought it was chaotic and I didn't like the comedy of it. I'm a tough critic on horror comedies. So, um, that's my history with it and my newfound love for it, I guess. When did you see it, Rich? I would have saw it on HBO. So probably, what, 82, 83? Because mm-hmm. it played a lot on HBO. And I got to know, as I did with all movies back then, that I shouldn't have been watching, according to my mom and dad, but I would watch on my black and white TV. You know, we had HBO scrambled, but if you turn that dial ever so slightly... HBO came in just about perfect enough. And that's how I watched most of my horror movies in the early to mid eighties. And I knew exactly, exactly when the shower scene was going to be coming up in this movie. I'll own it. Totally. Um, yeah. Jenny Agutter, she is still stunning. Even now I've, I've seen some current pictures and she has aged very well. So um, I, you know, I, I love horror comedies. So this is a movie I loved back in the day and I had not seen it for a while. And I have to admit that some of it didn't age quite as well for me since the last time I saw it, which was probably 15 years ago, I got the DVD. And so it's been kind of collecting dust. So this was a, almost a new visit. And of the four films, this is the only one I watched with Carla because she doesn't like the gore and stuff, but for some reason she likes this one. And, you know, it's also got animal stuff in it, so she can't explain it either. <laughs> um, but um, I thought that that the uh, – I had a hard time with, with uh, was it David Naughton, the lead actor? Um, not a great actor. Uh, and I keep hearing Dr. Pepper when I'm, you know, in my head whenever I see him. So um, – but um, I, still, I still enjoy this one, even though it didn't age quite as well. I thought like the special effects still held up um, for me anyway. Um, Yeah, there may be better out there, but there was certainly a lot worse, especially at this time. So uh, I had a lot of fun with this one, revisiting it. And especially again, watching it with Carla and still kind of puzzled as to how she likes this one. But, you know, we went with it and she she still liked it. So So let me ask you guys a couple of questions. Um, Jeff, one for you. What do you think was it about this viewing that kind of changed your mind? And do you think it was maybe like the mood you're in or maybe like older eyes or more seasoned horror? And then same thing um, for you, Rich. What do you think about this movie specifically 
in your mind did not hold up and it's not like tell me your answer no but it's just like <laughs> i because just i'm curious well i i can answer that easily because one of the things i had a problem with in my original memory of seeing it was you know his brother coming back and uh i just i in my mind that was like so much of the movie and i just didn't really like that i wanted to see the werewolf and I didn't understand how the undead had what it had to do with it. But now it, it's only like three scenes, you know, and I think there's something there. I'm not smart enough to figure it out, but maybe psychological, you know, about uh, him coming back and his brother seeing him. And uh, I really, I liked that. Yeah, that's cool. I think for me, you know, it was, it was the acting from David Naughton. I mean, sometimes it just, I struggled with it at times. It's kind of like I wanted to smack him around a little bit because some of his actions in the movie. Uh, but, you know, everything else was, was you know, as I remembered it and, and wore well, um, I'd say that was that was about the only thing that kind of just pulled me out of the moment sometimes was just, you know, I don't know, some of his whining in the hospital, I, which I never really picked up on before. Again, I just kind of wanted to, you know, smack him, you know, get over it, you know, kind of the kind of feel. But uh, otherwise, everything else, I think, held up. Well, like I said, the special effects, I was really curious how that was going to work for me. And I still, you know, thought that that was that was really good. Interestingly enough, that was the one thing that uh, Carla noticed. She thought that like the makeup effect on um, on his friend, was it friend or brother? His friend, Griffin Dunn. Yeah. Oh, I apologize. Um, we got what she, you're saying, though. Yeah. thought that 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 looked too fake, um, and I kind of thought it looked oh. still kind of good. So, mm. but um, yeah, I think that I think that was just David Naughton. So basically, wanted, you wouldn't let him steal your balloon. <laughs> no, I would not. I would not. <laughs> I I really like the fact that you were both able to actually reapproach this movie, especially with fresh eyes. Because one thing that Genius and I have definitely noted this year, even within 2020 that mood has really altered the way we view a lot of films. Mm-hmm. So I don't know maybe if it's just the um, the chance to actually get out and about, whether you are out on the moors. Um, you know, it does not matter. There is something about this movie, I think, that is definitely holds up. Now, let me ask you this, Rich. Do you think if Griffin Dunn and David McNaughton had switched roles, do you think that would have worked better for you? Oh, wow. Um, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that might have might have worked a little bit better. Um, I think the thing that saved me on this movie, you know, whenever I had those moments where David Dotton was kind of pulling me out, um, was just the feeling of nostalgia that I had the whole way through. Um, and again, having not seen it for like 15 years, um, I, you know, cause I got this DVD cause it, DVD is what I watched it on. And, um, you know, it was probably a, a blind buy at Best Buy back in the day. I, every Tuesday I go to Best Buy and I'd come home with like 10 DVDs. Oh, right. Man. Yeah. Um, and so I was just, you know, buying stuff left and right. And I probably watched it at the time. And then 10 gazillion other movies have come up between now and then. So, um, I think, you know, maybe when it comes to, to bad acting, uh, I'm probably less forgiving now in, newer films than I am you know I can watch a 1950s movie that has the the worst special effects and the worst acting and I find it charming but if you give me a current movie that has bad special effects and bad acting it pulls me out of the moment I don't know why but 
I think that's probably why I struggled with that part of it. I think it was why, because they know better. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, not saying that movies in the 50s, it was still the whole motion pictures thing was still kind of fresh and new and burgeoning. And, you know, but by now, especially bad effects, there's no excuse in 2020 for bad effects. So, except for money tier issues. So, one more question. Um, where do you think this lies for you guys in the pantheon of werewolf films? Because for a lot of people, this is the werewolf film. Yeah, and I don't think it comes anywhere close. Uh, and I, I wish I had participated earlier. I hope this you can cut this out if the timing is wrong. But I understand this went up against the howling. It did. It did. And I'm just saying, had I participated in that, we might be sitting here now talking about the howling. Uh, I prefer that over American Werewolf. And then neither one really. I mean, we're the classic horror guys. Come on, Lon Chaney Jr. Right. <laughs> I kind of figured you know, that. Are the definitive werewolf movies now? Maybe for a new generation, sure. But I think not me. Uh, yeah, for current werewolf movies, like I love Dog Soldiers. Mm. Yes. Um, so I would have to say, you know, Dog Soldiers would win out as far as you know more recent werewolf films. Um, the Howling, gosh, it has been so long since I've seen The Howling, but I remember loving it. Um, I don't know if I would like that better or worse than American Werewolf in London. That's a good question. It's it's been too long since I've seen it. At one time, I would have I knew that I would have said American Werewolf, but you know, uh, Howling might win out too. Now I can't. I don't know for sure. If it makes you feel any better, it yeah. was like fifty-one to forty-nine when it <laughs> came to Howling versus where uh, wow. uh, American oh, Werewolf. Oh, good. That's solid. Well, and also the fact that it was actually Genius's first time watching the Howling. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, which made it even better. No, I agree. I think American Werewolf in London, it definitely balances a lot of the the comedy, the horror, uh, the the pure drama, a little bit of a character piece. But and the werewolf transformation still fucking holds up. I, I agree. Mean, like, I agree. I, I think that's a very cool, painful looking werewolf transformation. No, absolutely. The sound design is one of the things. But let me ask you this: the music is rad as shit. What are your thoughts on the fact that we basically have no score, just the entirety of the soundtrack built around? like moon songs i like that i mean that contributes to me to the comedy of it uh and uh i don't miss it not having a score in fact now that you mentioned that i don't think i realized it didn't uh, i mean i know it had the songs obviously uh yeah i'm not sure that i even really picked up either that it didn't have a score but you know the songs were so iconic and such a part of it so that when i hear those songs I often think back to the movie, you know, it's like I immediately think of, you know, the, the transformation sequence. So, um, yeah, I don't, it didn't impact me either. I don't think it maybe even enhanced it a little bit. Well, and I reason, the reason I mentioned that is because the next film we're going to be looking at here, Halloween two is built all around the score and the themes. So they're very contrasting. So final thoughts, uh, Jeff rich on American werewolf in London, before we head on over to Haddonfield. I, one other thing I want to quick comment on, I think what affected my first viewing is I was a big Fangoria reader at the time and all the articles about it had come out. I knew about the dream within a dream sequence, which to this day just doesn't even really surprise me. I just, I don't know. I don't think it's scary at all. Um, I, you know, I never jump. Uh, so, but I, I think at least now I will admit it. it's good. It's a good movie. I always jump at that scene, even knowing even yeah. knowing it's coming. Yeah, it still gets me. It yeah. still gets me. It's because my the final the frog. thought. 
Jenny Agater. That's that's <laughs> all I gotta say. I yes, yes, she is. <laughs> that is showing your work, ladies and gentlemen, right there. <laughs> Nurse treat. Well, let's go ahead and get you all uh, logged in and checked in here to Haddonfield Hospital. Amazing Grace. <laughs> <laughs> you were uh, very monumental in helping the original Halloween go all the way and win our 2018 Into the Mouth of March Madness tournament. And here we have, just a few years later, the sequel, which I'm curious to get your thoughts on. So, Jeff, Rich, what do you guys think of Halloween 2? Rich, you want to go first this time? Yeah, because I know you're gonna you're gonna be singing some praises here, Halloween. Oh, you might be surprised. Really? Oh, okay. Um, for me, first time you know viewing of Halloween two would again probably been on HBO back in the eighties. Um, I you know I was kind of slow coming to the Michael Myers you know love fest um, because I loved Halloween three. Obviously, that has nothing to do with Michael Myers. But then it wasn't until probably about 10 years ago that I saw Halloween four or five, six and, and the rest of the Halloween film. So, um, you know, Halloween two, I've always, I've enjoyed it, but it's always been problematic for me. Cause I, I kind of think reality and I'm like, why is there not a damn person watching the babies in the hospital? You know, I mean, the nurses leave and those poor babies are left by themselves it's dark. You've got one security guard for the entire, you know, and, and Barney Fife would have done better than that guy. Um, <laughs> and got, uh, I don't know. It's just, there's just no, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, Haddonfield wasn't, it was a small town, but it didn't seem like it was a hamlet of 20 people. <laughs> it seemed like it was at least a moderately sized community. So it should have had a bigger hospital or at least a little more activity going on in it. That's always been the, the thing that just kind of pulled me out of the moment. And, and of course I know that Jamie Lee Curtis was wearing a wig. Um, and I'd never really noticed how bad the wig looked, but when you were, when they're pulling her out on the gurney and her hair is just kind of scattered every which way. Now I know she's, barely survived you know an attack but that's they, they did something wrong with that scene she looks better in the, in the hospital scenes but that one i just it stood out to me it made me laugh i you know but there's I, it's a movie that just i kind of it's a roller coaster ride because i'll like one scene because i love donald pleasance you know he's just batshit crazy at times in this movie mm-hmm. um i loved the connectivity with the first movie you know i mean it's it really does pick up You've got the uh, the sheriff, you know, comes back. You've got her friend that makes a brief cameo on the on the gurney, dead. But you know, there's that there, there's a connection there that um, I appreciate. Um, it's but it's for me, it is it's a pretty big step down from the first movie. Um, I know that John Carpenter didn't care for this, and back over the years, he's had some pretty harsh words towards it. So, um, but it's I don't think it's as bad as some people claim it is. I think it's, I enjoyed it. It was first time revisiting it in quite a while, but uh, I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but it, it's got some problems along the way, but it's not consistently bad. It's just a roller coaster, you know, it kind of goes up and down and I still worried about those poor babies. I don't know what was going on with those. <laughs> Somebody think of the children. <laughs> well, Rich, there were 
people. I thought about that because that's a common complaint. There were plenty of people there to staff that small town hospital at in the middle of the night. They all got killed. I mean, how many? They had more nurses there than they need just so they could kill them all. Hell, a couple of but nurses one, got away to go do some hanky panky. That's right. <laughs> that's true. So I love this movie, um, and uh, my I saw this later that fall in college um, in Columbia, Missouri. So I have that you know connection. I uh, I like it. I love the connection. I actually am the one that likes the plot. I like knowing. Oh, Lori is his uh, sister. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> But this time I watched, and that is really forced. I mean, there are no clues to it, and you can tell they forced it. I mean, she sits in the hospital bed and says, why me, why me? Well, how does she know it's her? I mean, he's out in the town, you know, so it just is kind of, and it's either the editing or the continuity, but if you are paying attention, it makes no sense. The uh, paramedic is in the hospital talking to, well, okay, first of all, they uh, hit the, they hit the guy that's not Michael Myers and the ben truck Tramer. explodes. Ben and then the, the deputy comes by and tells the sheriff that his daughter was killed. They run off. Then we're at the hospital. The paramedics talking to Lori. Then we're at the house where the sheriff comes and finds his daughter. The two paramedics are there bringing her out. How long did it take him to drive home? You know, I mean, these are the kind of things you, after you see it so many times, you notice. And they really kind of bugged me. Um, you mentioned the music. That to me is the biggest letdown. I don't like the organy, flutey type music that you just can't beat that simple piano, you know? And, but it's an indication of the movie itself. It's just brighter. There's no really mystery of him emerging out of the dark. Uh, the, the, the scene when he goes to the, the woman's house or the, the girl, his second kill, I think. She's walking across the room. He like springs up from the floor. It's like, what were you doing? Crouching, waiting for her to come by so you could jump out and scare her like a kitten? You know, I mean, I don't know. I, it seems like I'm really picking apart, but I'm, this is probably the most critical I've been with it because I do like it. I really enjoy it. I, I like it as a sequel. I love how it just picks right up and continues. It's, you know, like one big uh, movie. Here's the here's the the ultimate question for me and you guys you you didn't even honor his name but where would you stand if the Tramer family decided to put a lawsuit against both the town of Haddonfield and Dr. Loomis because oh my goodness we need justice for Tramer I'm just telling y'all right now Yeah, yeah. Halloween 2.5 just waiting to happen somewhere right <laughs> The Tramer cut like it, it there because it's a whole nother horror movie. It becomes uh the Tramer family and the Loomis family from Amity Island and like all these other uh families where the wrong. sheriffs there were where the law has done terrible things and they just do one classic law one giant lawsuit. <laughs> it's the Here's a question I asked after watching it this time. What happened to the kids from the first movie? Are they okay? Where did they go? They probably went home. I mean, they're probably like, hey, your kids are like, something bad happens. You, whatever you're fucking doing, you need to get your ass home now. Whatever key party their parents yeah. were attending in Haddonfield that night, which, <laughs> oh, by shit, the way, exactly, and they cover the, they cover the thing. that was another thing that stood out to me when they, they didn't want Lori around that first time. No, I, this is a movie we recently uh, did a commentary track for. And let me ask you guys yeah, this question yeah. Do you guys have a, 
do you guys think that this could be considered American Jalloistic? Due to the lighting, the um, although we do know who the killer is, just some of the uh, the deep reds that you see in this, some of the shots, because it to me it's visually significantly different than part one. It seems yeah. almost like like we said on the show earlier during when we were picking this, it almost has that Jallo feel with the bright reds and you see Michael Myers, but you see a lot of his hands mostly. That's interesting. I, I can see that in the different methods of murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's yeah, that's an interesting take. I, I agree. I I can see that. Hmm. Not making much sense on the surface. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nightmare, dream logic, and all sorts of shit. But no, yeah, I I thought that that was an interesting thing. Okay, so before we knock out uh, any other stuff, any final takes on Halloween two that you have? I didn't think so. I had fun revisiting it. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of people rag on it, but I think it's it's better than that. Um, I, you know, four, five, and six go down a whole different path, right, and start turning Michael Myers into this, you know, pagan character whatever they did in those movies and then you know i vaguely remember the abomination of of uh halloween resurrection and uh i will say this is infinitely better than zombies halloween 2 which i despise that movie i i you know i liked what zombie did with the first halloween and then the second one he just he got way too much carte blanche and I hated the unicorn and Loomis was an asshole and tries to redeem himself. And there's spirit Michael at the end. And so, yeah, this is leaps and bounds better than some of the other Halloween films that were to follow. So. Well, as it stands as one more question. Oh yes. Would you want to stay at Haddonfield hospital? (laughs) No, hell no. Especially in the yeah. maternity ward, right? <laughs> Not in the maternity ward. Now, you know, if I was a paramedic and there was a nurse there, maybe that, but that doesn't end well for them. So, no, I'd have to pass. <laughs> That's no hot baths. <laughs> no, I'll pass on the bath. Cleanly- no, no sauna. Yeah, cleanliness is not next to godliness at Haddonfield. Now, two horror classics from 1981, and only one can go forward to the next round. And again, we're going to be showing our work, and our first criteria is so nice that we do indeed do it twice. We're going to ask, which of the two films is closer to your heart? Closer to the heart! That was actually pretty good. I can feel the pain in the voice. Getting there. So let me go ahead and throw it out to you, gentlemen. Jeff Rich, which of the two, American Werewolf in London or Halloween 2, is closer to your heart? Halloween 2 is closer to my heart. I've always liked it. I didn't go through a period of time that I didn't like it. Um, Even though I had similar first-time experiences, Halloween uh, just means more to me. Completely American Werewolf in London, closer to my heart. Um, Just more connection to it. And uh, more enjoyment, even now watching both movies, it's that one still still hits all the right uh, right things. Even though you know Dr Pepper is annoying, but beyond that, still works for me. And for our younger listeners, go YouTube David McNaughton Dr Pepper commercial. I'm a pepper. He's a pepper. She's a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Genius. Closer to your heart. I really enjoy both these movies, but Halloween Two was the first Halloween movie I saw beginning to end and i've always enjoyed that it cemented my uh 
theory that all paramedics and morticians are filthy and odd. Um, it made it made me hear the words "Amazing Grace" totally different from then on. Um, so, as much as I love American Werewolf, I gotta go with Halloween too for "Close to the Heart." And the same kind of criteria for me. This is one of those where the Halloween Two VHS cover still haunts my dreams to this day. Oh, with the skull and the fucking pumpkin? And yeah. there is something about that that just beckoned me to tr- to dare to rent it, even though it took me a while. And it's that feeling of nostalgia. And again, my just love of the franchise that I'm also going to go with Halloween 2 on that. Now, from the heart to the head, we're going to be asking the question, if you were to remove one of these two films from 1981, which of the films would leave 1981 poorer? So again, which of the which one would leave 1981 poor? Jeff Rich, show your work. I think that's a tough one because if we didn't have Halloween 2, we would have had any other number of slashers that have gone with it. Halloween 2 wasn't so big a hit that they wanted to continue the story. Halloween 3 went in a way different direction. So I don't know that we, you know, it's a sequel. I don't know if we really need it. I'm glad we got it. So I don't know about that. In American Werewolf, we already mentioned we had The Howling at the same time. So if we didn't have Werewolf and The Howling was a success, would we have got to the same place with Werewolf movies that we did with American Werewolf? I'm going to have to say, though, that the winner's American Werewolf just because it is unique enough, different enough from Halloween that that probably had the most impact. I would say American Werewolf because of the special effects. There was nothing in Halloween 2 that necessarily advanced films to the next level, but the, the special effect work in American Werewolf in London was inspirational for other special effects artists that came after. Um, and it was cutting edge at the time. So you take that away, that could have a ripple effect. There, there could be a lack of inspiration, lack of uh, advancement with special effects. So American World from London. I'm going to go with American World from London because if we took away American World from London, yeah, we wouldn't have mind-blowing special effects, Rick Baker and all that shit going on. Um, and we wouldn't... And the the number of good werewolf movies, you can probably count on one hand, right? One Maybe Yeah, one paw. If we would have got away... If we would have done out with Halloween 2, I love Halloween 2, but we still would have got Season of the Witch. Yeah. And even now... How many retcons have there been to erase Halloween 2? So for that, as much as I love it, I think we would be okay getting rid of Halloween 2. So I'm going to go American Werewolf. My answer also is going to be American Werewolf in London, but I'm going to piggyback off something you said, Rich, This the ripple effect, that without American Werewolf, we wouldn't have chainsaw and dave from summer school writing their essay all about the wonderful effects of one rick baker who indeed won an academy award and by a count of six to three but then again if we didn't have an american werewolf in london we wouldn't have american werewolf in paris and i think we would still be okay oh wow i might have to take my vote back now <laughs> but claw on its way into the round of the hateful eight an american werewolf in london moving on now, this leads us to our last two films here in the round of the Scream 16, and we've got two wildly, wildly so different. So different. <laughs> we have the Canadian classic, My Bloody Valentine, going against the Italian classic, The Beyond. Jeff Rich, which of these two do we delve into first? Let's do My Bloody Valentine. 
on a cold February morning. <laughs> I'll start it off. Um, you know, for me, I never even heard of this movie until about 10 years ago. Um, it was mentioned on uh, the Drunken Zombie, po- Drunken Zombie podcast that I used to listen to. And they were always covering movies or giving suggestions. And I was like, what is this movie? I'd never, I'd never seen it. I'd never even heard of it. It just totally was off my radar. And I got it on, on DVD right away. And I loved it. I loved it because it was a different type of slasher flick. The kids weren't really all good looking. It wasn't at some lake. They were they were miners. They were kind of real people in a way, right? I mean, they the kid the kids worked at a mine. It was in this this gloomy little town, but there was a grittiness and a reality to it. And even like the the slasher ended up being a little bit different than some other movies. Um, and then you had the awesome theme song at the end, which just totally works. Um, I don't know. You know, this movie, every time I revisit it, I, it, it just holds up every single time. Um, you know, this one had been probably maybe three or four years since I'd seen it last. And, uh, I loved it still. So this is a movie that, um, from first viewing it, it clicked with me. Absolutely. Um, and it just, I don't know if there's anything, Sure, there's some cheesy things about it, as you know, in all slasher flicks. But I don't know, just the grittiness, the grittiness and the grime of the mine and the town. And I don't even think you see any sunshine except maybe the the one scene by the lake or the whatever. That even then, that's marginal. The rest of the time, it's just cloudy and gloomy, and you just get a feeling of it's cold. And you know, uh, I don't know. I loved it. I don't remember the first time I watched it. I love it as well. It is, it's definitely a notch above most slasher movies. I mean, it's got, mm-hmm. it's solid. It's got mm-hmm. a solid story. The The kid coming back, his father owns the mine. You know, he was a failure out in California. <laughs> his girl's gone to someone else now. It's, it, I, it just is really solid. Uh, it's, my uh, fondness for it goes beyond that. I don't know if you guys remember uh, when Screenland was at the crossroads and uh, Tim had one of his midnight things and we did the double feature of My Bloody Valentine and its remake and I dressed as uh, the miner and, and came in and with the pickaxe and everything and so I mean I've always loved it it it's the first thing I ever wrote for Downright Creepy was a comparison of the original and the the remake wow. so I've seen it many many times I enjoy it every time and uh I just, I don't know that I can justify it. I just love it. I really need pictures of mm-hmm. you dressed up as Harry Warden, Jeff. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I am so jealous. Well, I we actually, can recreate it. Valentine's Day is coming up. They're going to be selling all the hearts and candy and shit. That's right. Well, I do remember Screenland back in those days at Crossland because you used to have to show up really early to get like one of the front row couches. And I used to get up there about an hour early for about anything. So I totally get it. No, by any chance... Rich, you mentioned you watched this on DVD, but uh, Scream Factory put out a fantastic Blu-ray last year that restored a lot of the original excised gore in the movie. Oh. 
and it's a totally different movie. Oh, it's gory <laughs> shit with the gore added in there. It is it is significantly meaner, but it's it, still charming as shit. Oh, it's the charm for me that works. Um, now I'm curious, uh, Rich, have you seen the remake of this? Then, since I know Jeff, you have. I did. I saw the remake, and and I loved it as well. I mean, different movie. Um, not as good as the original, simply because I don't recognize any of the actors in the first one. Um, whereas with the second movie, Jensen Ackles, immediately supernatural, you know. Um, I love him as an actor, but it pulls me out of the moment a little bit. And I think what Kevin Ty played the the miner, yes, the owner did. of the mine, I think. Again, somebody that I know very well. So that kind of pulls me out. But I did really enjoy it and in fact that's one of the very few movies i've seen in 3d i'm not a big 3d fan when they were doing that but that movie really worked as 3d i mean when the the pickaxe you know was coming at you that worked um and uh you know i you've made me want to seek out the blu-ray of the original because my dvd uh died on me it 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 actually (laughs) crapped out years ago. And so to revisit this was Amazon Prime watching for me. So that just gives me reason to add it to the list. It's well worth it. And this is one of those that I also stumbled upon within the probably the last five years or so. And technically it was in our underseen slasher bracket. So Mm -hmm. it's appropriate when you guys mentioned, you know, like Rich, you know, took you a while to get to it. But Jeff, I'm so glad that this is one of those that's very near and dear to your heart, so to speak. Um, ah, heart. Ah. <laughs> um, but for me, it is the fact that everyone involved, like Hollis and Howard and Pam, or I should say um, a Canadian Pam from the office there, Jenna, I believe is her name. They're just, all of them are just so charming and just not what you would expect. And like you said, Rich, total opposite in that remake because it's so chaste in the first one. Mm-hmm. But in the remake, I mean, there's that full on sex scene. There's just so much, and I, I, I think I'm getting older because I was like, "Oh Lord, what is happening here?" <laughs> Touching your pearls and I was, shit. It was horrible. My delicate sensibilities, heaven. This isn't this isn't your pappy's my my bloody Valentine, you know. <laughs> but what also stuck sticks out for me though is the pure Canadianness of the fact that they are like they are cooking TV dinners on the engine blocks in that junkyard. Yes. They break out the harmonicas. Big old pots of hot dogs, you know? <laughs> Boiled hot dogs. Right? There's just something with the charm of the movie. Just the, I'm Surrey. I'm so damn Surrey. It's very Canadian, but I still, I just, this is one of those that I absolutely adore. Because they felt real. Yeah. Nobody really felt like fodder. Because no. you, if you have sexy teens going to a camp, you know they're all just going to like fuck around and get killed. And okay, cool. But like you said, this is their home. This yeah. is their job. They're not going, they're not breaking any rules. There's no crazy Ralph saying, don't go there. There's a death curse. There's a crazy Ralph saying, don't have the party. Yeah. But at the same time, that's exceedingly different from like, I don't have to go to camp, but I have to go to work. So like that makes it a little bit more real. And the fact that you said these aren't like Hollywood uh, A-list looking celebrities. The, the fact that they are like that one does look like Gene Shallot, and one does look like Harry Reams, and one does look like you know. So it makes it a little bit. Oh, I think the Harry Reams got Richard. It made it. It made it feel. It made it feel more authentic. And yeah. the fact that now I'm not 
putting this the the extra scenes into my thing, but if you see it with the extra scenes in it, it's so much more violent and gory. And the people who you want to get come up and skit come up, it's like, oh, culture, I'll teach them for laughing at me. I'm gonna make this mannequin pick, you know. So yeah. Oh my goodness, that particular death when you see the extended footage of it, it's it fucking is gnarly. It's great. <laughs> It's great. Oh, my goodness. I remember hearing about that, and I, for a long time, I think that footage was lost. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool that they rediscovered that. That's cool. And they've, they've cleaned it up as best they can, so you can always tell that it's the grade is a little bit subpar, but to me, that kind of adds to the charm. What movie was that where they did the same thing? Pray for Death. Pray for Death. Pray for Death. A little Shokazuki ninja film that did the same thing that actually is more of a hard R horror film than an actual ninja flick. Ninja slasher. So final thoughts on My Bloody Valentine before we head overseas? I think one other thing that's a little different, uh, if you think about it, technically the leads are a couple of old men, the mayor and the sheriff. I mean, they're the one that know the history. We don't have this whole thing of people, you know, doubting and uh, it's like real. And uh, I think that's kind of unique in slasher films. The Ballad of Harry Warden is real, and we should all adhere to it. Speaking of the Ballad of Harry Warden, let me get something off my chest with this one. As, as cool as the Ballad of Harry Warden is, it is no way, shape, or form better than the Madman song. Absolutely not. That is my hill, and I'm dying on and sticking on it. I like that song. The, the Ballad of Harry Warden is dope, but if, the, if we were going on bracket just by music alone, Madman 100% all the way. That has stuck in your craw for many a week, my friend. (laughs) So let's go ahead. And technically, we're not going over to Italy. We're just heading, uh, in this case, down south to New Orleans. New Orleans. With Lucio Fulci's The Beyond. So, Jeff Rich, what was your experience or background with this little Italian nasty masterpiece? Absolutely nothing. I've seen it before, but there's no attachment, no story of seeing it the first time. I'm sure I just finally watched it on video one day after hearing about it for many years. Um, I like it. It's, it's different. It's a night, a dream come to life. It's, uh, I, I don't, well, maybe this uh, lack of being able to talk, although that happens to me a lot is indicative of what can you say about the beyond? That's why we're laughing, because we have those same kind of reactions trying to explain a Fulci film, trying to explain something from Italy. Oh, wait, you're going to be doing a dance, my friend. Yeah, you, can, you can't really judge it on the story or the logic, but the, just the feeling, the atmosphere, what you get out of it, the visuals. Uh, and that it's very, I mean, that's its strength for sure. For me, you know, I was aware of the uh, the movie. Um, now, this is part of the trilogy, right? So Gates of Hell, I saw way back in the day. I mean, back, I want to say again, I think it was on HBO or one of the movie channels. Um, and what drew me into that first one was Christopher George, because I loved him in the Rat Patrol. So I was like, oh, Christopher George, I got to see this. Um, and I, and I was never aware that there were two other films until many, many years later. And early last year, I rewatched, cause all three of these are on shutter. I rewatched Gates of Hell or what is it? City of the Living Dead or whatever mm-hmm. they call it. Um, and, you know, still enjoyed that one. It, it's, you know, didn't quite hold up as well as I thought. And then I watched the beyond. I didn't like it. And, and I just... I couldn't get into it. 
Um, I think it, it took me maybe two nights to make my way through it. And so when I knew we were going to be doing this, I was kind of like, at first I'm like, well, I, I probably know enough about it. And I thought, no, I think I need to revisit. I think Jeff and I were talking and he, he said, you know, you should probably rewatch it just to have it fresh in your memory. I'm glad I did because I enjoyed it more the second time. Um, I, I started, I think I got like maybe 20 minutes into it and I got tired. So I stopped and then I finished it up and it, some of it started to, to make more sense to me um, as far as what the overall intent of the movie was, because it's not a, you know, a traditional point A to point Z linear <laughs> film. I mean, it's very much, I think it's described as a fever dream. And when you approach it that way, all of a sudden you kind of look at it in a different lens. And I appreciated it more than, than I did on the first viewing. I kind of hearken it back to my experience with uh, Suspiria. Suspiria. Um, <laughs> a film that took me multiple viewings before I finally got it to where I like, yep, yeah, I like it. I love it now. I've got it on, you know, Blu-ray and, and Steelbook Edition. The Beyond, you know, I think if I watch this a third time, I'll probably like it better than I did the, the first and second time. It's It's a trip. <laughs> it's yeah. it's it's got a lot of nonsensical stuff and i'm sitting there asking all sorts of questions you, you know me and the babies at halloween too i'm sitting there why did that girl go to the to the funeral without anybody taking care of her the poor girl everyone leaves and she's just standing there <laughs> she's eyes going blind and i felt sorry for her you know and then i'm like wondering same thing it's like why you know was she even why did they go to the morgue? Why did the wife sit there, dead bodies all around her, and she decides, I'm going to strip my dead husband naked and put his, his funeral suit on him? You know, <laughs> so many questions. I don't even know if we need answers to them, but um, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense. You just have to go with the flow. So One thing that we, we've mentioned before is that we definitely feel there's kind of um, a discipline to watching some of the international horror films because of, obviously, cultural context differences. But then just when the narrative is just so weird and not necessarily there, when you watch it the first time, you're figuring out, what am I, not miss what am I missing here? What's the, where's the connection I'm not making? But the interesting about that, and is one of the arguments we made on the, it's the, the intro, excellent, that is even though this is nightmare lo uh, dream logic and like it's hard to follow the story, it's still one of the more consistent yeah. and cohesive jallos out there, you know, or, uh, Italian horrors out there, because as goofy as it is, there's still somewhat of a sensible story, at least the bare bones mm -hmm. of it, as opposed to some of the other shit out there. So that's one thing I liked about this one. And yeah, I felt bad as fuck as that poor little girl. She's having the worst time. I mean, both of her parents, one of her parents got killed by an undead monster and the men left him for dead in the middle of a of brown water. Second of all, her other her other parent got melted visiting the first parent. Then she goes blind. Then like fucking madness happens. It's yeah, I felt my heart went out for that poor little girl. It sounds like you went on a journey with her. With her. Yes. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Is it you that has the thing about eyeballs, or you have something in horror movies? Is it the tongue or slashing the neck or something? No, rats. 
Oh, okay. Well, no, sorry. I'm I'm fine with but people getting stuck with the eyeball. A, an issue with eyeballs, you're oh. not going to make it through the beyond. You can't or watch any anything Italian, Italian. yeah, <laughs> especially well. folksy ones. <laughs> well, and then we 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 heard back at last year's Panic Fest when uh, Patty Murphy and Joe Lynch were talking about when you go full Fulci, you just go Fulci. Full chi. And there were moments in this film where he goes full chi. Multiple times. There was so many eye gougings. This was almost a Jallo's greatest hits with the kills because you had you had multiple deaths with involving animals. Yeah. Oh, the- you had multiple deaths involving um resurrected zombies. You had multiple deaths involving eye trauma. Sometimes all three in the all same in kill. So this was almost like a Jallo greatest hits. Like Sessions presents Italian Gold, you know? They made love in my Vespa, and that's all right with me, you know. So, <laughs> you, we've mentioned the music before of uh, John Carpenter in Halloween Two, Alan Harwitz edition. What do you guys feel of Fabio Fritzi's work here in the Beyond? I really enjoyed it. Um, I just recently listened to an audio from Bleak December um, of the Black Cat which is read by uh, Anthony uh, DP Mann, who used to do the Horror Etc. podcast. He has a company now called Bleak December, and they do all these original um, audio productions, sometimes him reading, but sometimes it's like full cast productions. And Fabio Fritzi did the soundtrack for the reading, um, which just enhanced the overall presentation to the extent that they even had, it was a two-record set, because I got it on vinyl, and they give... Fabio Fritzi, his own soundtrack album for this audio reading. So that's how much they, they revere him. Um, I, I love the music in this one. Um, you know, it's, you kind of know what, when, when you're going into a, uh, a sequence where, yep, somebody's going to die because all of a sudden the action stops and you've got victim and you got the killer or the zombie or whatever you want to call it. And then, Cue the music, and the music mm-hmm. kicks in, and for the next two, three minutes, here's the sequence, right? And then you just know it's going to go slow yeah. and slow and slow, but somebody is going to end up dead, probably with an eye gouged out. It's not going to end well, <laughs> but the music's going to be pretty damn awesome. They're going to have an awesome soundtrack to their death. Yeah. I, I enjoy Fabio Fritzi. Okay. Jeff? I um, yeah, I like it. I it doesn't stand out to me. Uh, it, it's just part of it. I, it uh, I don't. I didn't notice it like I do in some uh, Italian movies. Well, and it's usually Fulci and Fritzi usually work together. And honestly, I'm going to show a lot of bias in this because I have a soft hole spot for um, Fabio Fritzi. Um, for those of you who are unaware, and probably I don't know if Jeff and Rich, you know this story, but he came to the Screenland once. And um, afterwards, he was like, oh, I'm going to take pictures with everybody. And I'm like, like, cool. And like, you know, say what's up. So let me backtrack a little bit. About a couple of days before, I took my first cat, Owen, to the vet because he had a bot fly injury, right? So uh, basically, a a little creature popped out of his chest and did its thing. Well, it left this big hole. Well, I took a picture of the hole so I can show it to the vet and all that stuff. And it's not attractive. It's not something no, you want to see. it's a big pink hole with fuzzy fur all around it. It looks terrible, right? Because it's a fucking botfly hole. So <laughs> Fabio Fritz is like, okay, I'm going to take a picture with everybody. Let me see your camera, right? And so 
Brett, who works here at the uh, at Screenland, was like, hey, I'll take the picture. And so we're all in selfie mode. So Fabio Fritzi's on one side in the middle between me and Brett. And Brett's got the camera out. And he pushes the wrong button. And it goes to the picture before. And the picture before was an up-close shot of that cat hole, that big pink fuzzy cat hole. And he goes... Oh, oh, what's that? Oh, oh. And I go, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's my cat hole. No, 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 I mean, it, my cat hole was fuzzy and had a bug in it. No, no, no. I'm trying to, like, talk myself out of this hole, and he's being like, oh, okay, okay, take it the picture. I got to go. Scoozy, 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 scoozy. And so if Fabio Fritzi never comes back to town, it's my fault and my fault only, and I feel so bad. But every time a Fabio Fritzi score comes on, I'm like, I fucking love Batman. So... <laughs> I've heard the I've heard the story multiple times and it kills me every time. I just there's something about that. Because so, he was legit like, oh, excuse me, I got I got to go, go back. I got to go. I got I got things to do. And I'm like, oh no. You made an impression with him there, genius. <laughs> and speaking of making an impression, both of these films obviously definitely hold a lot of heart, or you know, definitely hold a lot of stock in our hearts. But only one can go to the next round. So let's go ahead and break down the criteria. Which of the two here, My Bloody Valentine or The Beyond, is closer to your heart? Jeff and Rich, start us off. My bloody Valentine. Just is. I have the history. I have no history with the beyond. Yeah, same for me, my bloody Valentine. You know, multiple viewings, and it just holds up every single time. The first time I saw the beyond was in the theater. I was on a date. Um, I remember it vividly. And I remember seeing, like, uh, it's an Italian movie, so it's going to be weird. Um, there was no second date. Um, <laughs> and so for Closer to the Heart, because of that, I mean, because I've seen Bloody Valentine, I have great stories about hosting it and mm-hmm. shit, but never never like, oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, and that's all right with me. So I'm going to go with, for Closer to the Heart, I'm going to go with The Beyond. Totally works. I'm going to also go with My Bloody Valentine, only because I've also been fortunate enough to see it, both of them in the theater. That experience with Fabio Fritzi scoring The Beyond was incredible, but there's just something with that charm of My Bloody Valentine that it makes me feel good, and it makes me feel worse that it took me that long to get to it, where I could have been enjoying it since Jeff was back in the day. I could have been at that screen land, you know, double feature, but I wasn't. But it's that kind of yearning that definitely pulls on my heartstrings. So for that, it's My Bloody Valentine, but... Here's the real question. If you took one of them away, which one would leave the year 1981 poorer? So again, let's hold over to uh, Jeff and Rich. This is a really tough one. Uh, And not because uh, of I want to lose one. It's I kind of don't know which one to argue for. I mean, my bloody Valentine, we don't have. Okay, we don't have another slasher in one respect. And then the beyond, I guess I don't know enough about Italian to know what the impact would be if we didn't have that. I mean, we'd still have Suspiria, I'm sure. And I think that probably has a bigger impact on people probably than the beyond does. Um, Backtracking my bloody Valentine. Yeah. We may not have had a, another slasher, but we wouldn't have had a good slasher. You know, a lot of them were not that good. Uh, what do I pick? I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with My Bloody Valentine. Heart's going to win overhead. <laughs> Rich, what say you, good sir? I'm going to go with My Bloody Valentine. Here's my reasoning why. Because I did a little research, 
into the beyond because I wanted to know more about this movie. And this movie didn't even get released in the States until 83. Um, and it got released as Seven Doors of Death. Mm-hmm. And it was hacked all to shreds. No Fabio Fritzi soundtrack. And it didn't get restored with the original soundtrack and footage until I think, what, 98, when Quentin Tarantino um, put forth an effort to restore it, because this was one of his favorite films. So if you were to take, the movie didn't really leave a big footprint, at least here in the States. House by the Cemetery actually got released, I think, in the States before this one got released, because it was made in the same year. So seems like one movie just followed right after the other. I think the movie has a cult following now, but it took a lot of years to get to that point where the movie has now got a big cult following. I think if you were to take it away, I'm not sure that it would have would have left a a big hole, a big a big uh, cat hole in its place. <laughs> um, <laughs> Whereas I think with My Bloody Valentine, for starters, we wouldn't have the remake, which was actually one of the better remakes, I think, uh, of, you know, slasher remakes out there, um, despite the fact that, you know, there's some things that pull me out of the moment. As Jeff said, we wouldn't have a good slasher flick, flick, which there are some that are just greatly forgettable. This one is one that's one of the best, yeah. in my opinion, at least of the ones I've seen. So My Bloody Valentine. All right, genius. I am going to echo Jeff on this one. What do you choose? Because on one hand, you have um, a movie that is basically a greatest hits tape of all the other Italian movies, and then on another, on the other side of it, you have a one of the most underseen smart slashers there is. If you take away my bloody, you still have thousands of other slashers. Now, are ninety nine percent of them aren't going to be as good as my bloody? But you'll still have them. If you take away our greatest hits, you still have all those other Italian greatest hits. So this is kind of a different one. But for that, I think if you take away the greatest hits, you still have all those other ones to to enjoy and imbibe, and you'll be fine. If you take away this, if you take away my bloody, you take away a prime example of what a slasher can do. You a prime example of uh, something against the argument that oh, slasher is just horny teens in the woods and there's no substance and there's no nothing and there's no heart. And they're like ah, but here's my bloody. So here with the heart in a, it's a heart in a box. So <laughs> I think for my vote for this one, I got to go my bloody. You all have made some very compelling arguments here and. I'm also going to go ahead and go with My Bloody Valentine only because the fact that, yes, there are a lot of slashers out there, and if you remove it, you still have all those slashers. However, what I love with it is it's technically a one of those Canadian tax shelter films, and it's early on with those Canadian tax shelter films, so the success of this and all the stuff with Cronenberg, that led to things like Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, Wolf Cop, Turbo Kid, and we continue to see all those exploitation films and that's what I love is the fact that it's very much that. And I need more of that. And, oh my goodness, by account of, s- holy smokes, it, it, uh, Harry Warden obliterated <laughs> that, old, that old hotel owner there. And my bloody Valentine is heading into the round of the Hateful Eight, which means in the round of the Hateful Eight, we have an American werewolf in London against my bloody Valentine. Oh, shit, that's a good fight. 
that's not too bad. That's, that's a good fight. Bad. And we would not have gotten there, was it not, for the experiences of Jeff and Rich. Thank you guys so, so much for coming back on and joining us and engaging in the madness again. Well, thank you for having us. This is always a lot of fun. Love being on here. This is, uh, it takes us out of our comfort zone a little bit. You know, we, we dabble in the 70s and 80s, but it's always kind of fun to really do a deep dive into them. Well, as always, we appreciate it. And I'm glad also that you were able to revisit a couple of these films and they did have some good experiences for you. And Jeff, we're still waiting on that picture. So <laughs> I'll find you, it. If you ever I'll find it, it, let us know. Well, we're going to yeah, take. I, thanks again, guys. I, I look forward to this every. Oh. Almost every year. <laughs> Shots fired, <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, enjoy it now because it's the last, dude. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Not exactly uh, welcoming ourselves back, huh? <laughs> no, it's, it, honestly, yeah. it's really good to have you guys back. I mean, it really is. It, yeah, it does. It, it's not the madness without you guys. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by the folks from the Cadaver cast yes! to see London or Canada, which is going to move into the round of the Frightful Four for 1981? We'll find out in just a few Those minutes. Who remain were never the same. You could see the fear in their eyes. Once every year, as the 14th draws near, there's a hush all over the town. While the legend they say on a Valentine's Day. All right, gang, we are back. And as we go from the round of the Scream 16 into the round of the Hateful Eight, let us again thank Jeff and Rich from the Classic Horrors Club. Mm-hmm. And let us say goodbye, farewell, and adieu to both Halloween 2 and the beyond. It's, it's, it's sad. It's it is sad. sad. It is sad. You know, because any other day, potentially we could be talking about them. Fuck, any other day we could be talking about Madman. <laughs> Laura. <laughs> I know you're having some buyer's remorse, my friend. <laughs> Let's not take it out on these. Mm-hmm. But here in the round of the Hateful Eight, we are going to decide, we're basically seeing who is going to go forward and represent 1981 in the round of the Frightful Four. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we are closing a window for one podcast, but yet we're opening it for another one. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this particular podcast is no stranger to Into the Mouth of March Madness. Friend of the show. Absolutely a friend of the show. And you can hear our next guest as part of one of my favorite shows that I will always say is equal parts sinister and equal parts sweet. Please welcome back to Nightmare Junket and from the ma- Into the Mouth of March Madness, from the Cadaver cast, Jeff Burnham. Hey, what's up, guys? What's Thank happening, my friend? Oh, yeah. you know, we're, we're known for creeping into windows. So, same. We do best. Same. Yeah. We we creep in the windows and unlock doors. And <laughs> so, are you one of the night slashers from Cobra Genius? What's happening here? Better than the night slasher from the Cecil. So like, <laughs> well, where can people slide into your possible DMs there or the window on social media, Jeff? Uh, <laughs> please plug and promote away. Oh yeah. So you know, Cadavercast is all over the place. I mean, we're on Twitter, Cadaver underscore Cast, Facebook. We're on there and whatever instagram we do that too but uh the show's on soundcloud and apple podcasts and all that business so we're out there and it's hosted by my nine-year-old son who's now editing the show so that's a huge step how has that been for you especially maybe taking a load off on that side potentially it's (laughs) it's simultaneously a relief but also really stressful because like 
getting him to sit down and then do it has has been a bit of a you know a, a time issue because personally like I, i'll just stay up late and edit the show but like i'm kind of like on his schedule so our episodes have been going up at weird times and it's like it is what it is you know we're letting the kid run the show so i i don't have a problem with it you know what when the lunatics run the asylum sometimes it runs a little bit better so <laughs> we'll definitely see that goes but I, I i'll be honest i have not heard any like issues with it and i'm a regular listener so everything has been pretty seamless for the most part so bravo to al he's been doing a heck of a job yeah, I I do really very little to it now. Um, the last episode, I think I cut out two little gaps and I just add the music on and that was it. Nice work, man. It's it's kind of, it, listen, again, it's fascinating to actually hear him grow up in these episodes throughout the variety that you guys have produced and just being a lover of podcasts and especially the ones where you kind of feel like you're not necessarily involved in the conversation, but I feel like I'm part of the family with you guys. And yeah. to literally... And also then to, to see him getting older as well, you know, when we started this off, you know, off mic, it's kind of incredible. And I, like I said, I just cannot wait for him to get older and then look back on these with just, I can imagine it's just going to be such fond memories of. Be the coolest kid in the school. Absolutely. Because I mean, already Al is the shit. <laughs> Al, Al is dope. It's a good thing he's not here. Don't need to feed that ego. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of feeding here, um, we have two films that we need to definitely dig into. And of all the films in 1981, I, had a, I really had a feeling that one of these would make it to this round. But the other one we're talking about, I didn't think maybe it would get out of the first round potentially. Yeah, I, was, I knew one of them was going to go really, really far. But I, honestly, I didn't expect it to go one, all the way. I expected other one to go all the way i did as well which leads us to talking about uh an american werewolf in london going up against my bloody valentine which of the two shall we go ahead and start talking first uh jeff i'm gonna leave that one up to you oh man i mean let's go with american werewolf i guess it's alphabetically first so that adds up i like that. that's true now let me ask and it's something we always want to we inquire on by any chance do you remember your initial interaction with this film uh, what is your relationship with uh, John Landis as an American Werewolf in London? It's one that my mom would talk a lot about, right, before I would see it. Because my mom, big horror, like, I wouldn't say, is buff the right word? I don't know. She just watches a ton of them. You know what I mean? Like, can't get enough horror movies. So I uh, grew up with her as a horror hound and always talking about this stuff. And I just, like, it was this legendary thing. Like, I can't, like, I couldn't wait to see it, right? And I don't remember exactly how old i was when i saw it but when i did i was like wow like it lived up to the hype you know like that transformation is it's still staggering so I, it was a thing that was built up and you know it you, when people build things up for years it, it usually can't live up to it but this one does so and what i loved about the rewatch and I, it actually hits me every time is the family moment when they're watching the muppet show and then the Nazi werewolves show up. Yeah. It always shocks me, but always makes me go, oh, I just kind of want to watch the Muppet movies again, you know, or the Muppet show. It just, and that's, I think, the beauty of that film is how it just weaves the comedy and the horror and just all of those things so well together. And the Muppets. And, and the Muppets. And the Muppets. <laughs> now, um, how long has it been a while since you've watched this one by any chance? Is this one that's like on your rotation at all? I watch it probably. 
I don't know, every three years or so, something like that. I mean, lately it's been whenever I get my hands on a new copy, you know, so that's like the the new DVD came out, you know, ooh, special edition and then Blu-ray and then ooh, Blu-ray special edition, Steelbook. So every time I buy a new copy, I watch it at least. That's fair. Well, and it's, at least it's not like in the Evil Dead ranking at this point of re-releases. The, the, oh, the yeah. Warehead edition and all that stuff. <laughs> was there a certain part in this movie that cemented your love for it where you keep coming back? Like, what's your favorite thing in the movie? Man, there's like, I think every time I watch it, there's something new that gets me. Um, I mean, obviously, Griffin Dunn, though, is like the best part of the movie. He's incredible. And when he's rotting... And he's in like the porno theater that I mean, that scene, a werewolf talking to like a rotting ghost zombie man in a porno theater. You're not getting that in other movies. Mm -mm. So if if nothing else, that's that's a scene that sticks with you. And the fact that other ghosts are coming like, yeah, go ahead and kill yourself. Maybe you can (laughs) use a gun. Maybe you could drown yourself. Well, and it's also that very proper British affectation that they're taking. In a porno theater. Very good, sir. It'd be good for you. Mm -hmm. Yes. They're so chipper about it and good natured. What's all this puppy called? (laughs) Well, that was probably one of my first introductions to like what is maybe supposedly like British society or the stiff upper lip where I realized that there's definitely a difference in terms of how they're talking, what they're doing, and also, let's not lie, it's the introduction of one Jenny Ugater back in the day, mm. and, even, and even now, exactly, and we're not creepy too much here on the show, but it's like, that was a transformative experience as well, not only from <laughs> Werewolf, but the the, the medical uh, system in, in Britain, I don't know if necessarily a nurse follows, lets you go home with her like every time. I like that universal health care. I'm signing me up. (laughs) (laughs) God save the queen. It stuck out to me this time where I was like, wow, that was pretty quick. There's the old, the Florence Nightingale syndrome and what have you. And maybe that's what Landis was going for with this. But watching it this time, that's the one thing that really stuck out to me versus every other time I've watched it going, wow, this is maybe a road trip is, uh, you know, in, in line there. Genius. The nerds go to England. Dun, 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 dun. Next thing you know, you see us being chased by like bobbies and then the guy in a gorilla suit. But you'd have to throw a werewolf in there as well. Right. Instead of the gorilla suit, it's a werewolf. There we go. Big Ben. Parliament. Parliament. You're just hitting me on the back of the head like that. I'm running away. So, what was your experience like revisiting it again here for Into the Mouth of March Madness? And it's like, oh, I have things I could tell you off mic that, <laughs> that changed my experience of it for sure. But oh, wow. it's uh, the stories, you know, um, <laughs> not for the recording. Of course, of but, course. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, little things like Rick Mayo popping up is, is a surprise, you know, like that's a that's a delight. Um, little, little, little comedy bits like the, you know, a, a naked American man, you know, uh, stole my balloons or whatever. So many little bits are just to bring me so much joy and to watch it, like going into it when, when you think it's like a horror movie and then you sit down and it's so damn funny, you know, it's, I mean, like it's the pinnacle of horror comedies. I think like it's, it's one that's hard to top. And I think people have been trying and they just add more and more gore. And that's cool too, you know, but like it it's a 
it's a big movie even still for a reason. And if we weren't talking about it today, I would have been stunned. Like if you told me this is that it was any other movie than this movie, I'd have been like, what were you guys doing in the earlier rounds? How did that happen? Like it had to be here. We strayed from the road and went into the moors, my friend. Exactly. Yes. We it, went to the severed lamb. The slaughtered lamb. Slaughtered lamb. Severed lamb. So Why am I thinking severed heads? There is a one of my favorite podcasts, uh, the We Hate Movies podcast. They introduced a concept and a term called the werewolf, werewolf bar. And it's basically mm. what the slaughtered lamb is, where you're going to probably have the, the um, uh, wood walls. Mm-hmm. You're going to have probably some old trophies. Odd that taxidermy. A, a dartboard, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. always a bunch of locals. Stains where, everywhere on the wall. Oh, very some very mystery stains and some very prominent proud stains mm-hmm. that you know di- dictated something crazy happened there. But then, of course, you're always going to have your loony locals that are going to give you the stare down. And I don't know, like um, Silver Bullet actually kind of had this one as well, kind of a werewolf bar with yeah. Lawrence Tierney. Mm-hmm. With and the, the Peacekeeper. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you all stumbled upon any kind of a werewolf bar before? And if so, how did you get away from it? I have. I walked into this place, and I'm going to get fucking real regional here. It's <laughs> Bill 32's West. Okay. Now, my first inclination was the fact that they that it was a werewolf bar, which I should have saw the warning signs. I didn't see it until later. There's their Confederate flag flying oh. proudly above it. Now, this, mind you, was in my hardcore drinking days. So maybe 13, That's possibly. Fair. That's fair. Wait. Oh, God. I thought Not you were... when I was 13. No, no, no. Wow. <laughs> no. I started young, and I st- <laughs> I'm only 16. This is like hard living right here. No. Genius, you can't talk to my son anymore. Right? <laughs> I'm a bad influence. <laughs> Come on, Al, take a sip of this. Let the werewolf put some hair on your chest. Right? <laughs> but like, <laughs> I walked in and I was like, oh, I just want a beer. You know, I was going on, I was randomly was driving around. I'm like, eh, see what this place was. The kind where you walk in and the music stops and everybody looks at you and you sit down and like, here's your beer. And you're like, I think I'm going to go now. I think I'm going to leave because. Everybody is looking at me the entire time. Now I'm not worried about I'm not worried about werewolves. I'm more worried about rednecks. So like I need to skedaddle from here post haste. Anytime you're above the the Mississippi line and you fi- you see the Confederate flag, walk away. Yeah. Take Lord Humongous's advice. Right? Because this ain't a fucking tan. This is like so. <laughs> I was mighty uncomfortable. I'd rather be in a bar full of werewolves. Than with the bar that I was in. That's totally so. fair. <laughs> Jeff, have you have you come across any of uh, those kind of bars at all? I'm generally uncomfortable in bars. <laughs> like we can go, like you know, so most of them feel that way. I did have an experience at a bar that was uncomfortable, but I think it's because I was the weirdo. <gasps> so I mean, if we, if we look at the other way around, like I was the werewolf sort of mucking up their bar. Uh, my brother-in-law and I. We both have, you know, graduate degrees in communication. So we go into this bar here in Chicago, which is like a real local, like corner dive bar hangout place, but it's close to my apartment. So we went there and we sit down and we start talking communication theory, (laughs) sitting at the bar. And the lady behind the bar goes to the end of the bar and talks to the guy who's like cleaning up tables. And he comes over and he goes, I'm going to, I'm going to have to ask you fellas to, 
to move down to the other side of the bar, please. Like communication theory, man. Like, can't talk about that. Um, Were you in like you the no ostracized. critical? Yeah, the no critical theory conversation area. Right. What is that? That's no communicating that. in this bar, nor the theory of it. <laughs> it's just a sign with a Foucault's face on it and a big like cross through it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm that okay. That totally reminds That's me actually of a shit of a Bill Hicks bit that he did where he was in a Waffle House and he was reading, and the waitress <laughs> comes up and says. What you reading? No, what are you? What you reading for? And he's then uh, like accosted by other people, going, "Well, looks like we got ourselves a reader here." So I college boy. I don't know if you were offending them somehow, Jeff, or you and your friend, but my God, that's very interesting. I've never heard anybody kicking being kicked out for talking about communication theory. Now, maybe evolution theory, yeah, depending on the <laughs> if you're at Bill's thirty two, you know. But like at the same time. It's not like you. Oh, we can't have that talk. Like you, like talking about philosophers and mm-hmm. shit. We can't have that Socrates talking here. You know, kick it, get out. That is at odd. the same time though. If I walk into a room and I hear the word hegemony within two seconds of being in that room, I'm out the door. You know, like <laughs> even <true>. still. <laughs> that's completely understood. Yeah, that's. Uh, oh my god. So there's now. Oh, now I'm starting to think about all that stuff. It's flooding the memories back. I just watched um, Abel Ferrara's The Addiction. Oh my god, I love that movie. First time watch, and I didn't realize how steeped in philosophy it really was. Yeah. And it was really poking at some stuff that was like, oh yeah, I I remember reading that. I don't know if I understood it or interpreted it correctly, but I was <laughs> reading it. But it really kind of stirred some 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 fire in me to kind of go and revisit a lot of that and to look back at Socrates and see if we can corrupt the youth and all that kind of good stuff. I'm down. <laughs> well, you mentioned Rick Mayo in the bar, which was a big surprise for me as well because he, did you see it? I didn't see it. They played Drop Dead Fred here at Screenland this last weekend. Ooh, I haven't seen it. Fucking love that movie. I know, oh. I know. But I did throw in some young ones for the pre-show for Drop Dead Fred. So you know, making sure all the Rick Mayo friends are. The fans. Going back to the Muppets theories, would those two old men in the porno theater be the equivalent of Waldorf and Statler? (laughs) Maybe you should kill yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) Honestly, I could totally see that. I honestly, you could actually really make a great like recreation of American Werewolf in London with With Muppets. Muppets, Where you But then have the Muppets show an actual real person show. I would, oh, yes, yes. And so then how everything else is Muppets except the Muppets. Well, then now I'm actually kind of petrified at the thought of Nazi werewolf puppets because, or Muppets, I don't know. What is the difference between a puppet and a Muppet? M. Okay, that's fair. There's a couple letters, yeah. I didn't know if there was a a philosophical difference between them potentially or, you know, something to stir the, Mm. the fire. Puppets are just regular puppets, but the Muppets, that's like... You know of the Muppets, you know? So a, a, a Muppet is a puppet with personality? Exactly, and personality goes a mm. long way. Absolutely, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. We're going a long way here. Off, We're going off into the moors and off the main road here. Werewolves. <laughs> Werewolves. Werewolves. Well, we talked about... Piccadilly Circus. The Picad- okay, that's another scene that really stood out to me this time, especially for you, Genius, is the, the chaos in that Piccadilly yeah. s- uh, Circus scene, which... And let me throw this out to you. How long has it been since any of you have watched the Blues Brothers by any chance? Oh, many, many years at this point. And, you know, given the Chicago setting, of course, and everything, I'm sure that's probably... And Nazis. And Nazis. <laughs> yeah, the Nazis. That's true. 
Illinois werewolf Nazis. There we go. Hate them. Absolutely hate them. Oh my god. <laughs> See, this is where you could do some really weird, like John Landis cross, like you know, cinematic universe Nazi aspects. Nazi werewolf in Chicago. Yeah. I I kind of watch it maybe. Mm-hmm. And if you actually then cross that over into Queens with a little coming to America. If you have Prince Hakim battling a werewolf, I'm kind of mm. down. I don't know. No? Sexual chocolate versus the werewolf. Oh, <laughs> oh hells yeah. Hells that yeah. That werewolf's good. <laughs> you must be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Well, and I know John Landis is also very much a controversial figure, um, depending on where you stand on the whole Twilight Zone thing, which is one of the things why I think sometimes an American werewolf in London does have a little bit of, not controversy attached to it, but that was just a few years, because Twilight Zone was in 83. Yes. So this is just a few years. So he's actually still building a lot of goodwill Mm -hmm. at this point. And then, you know, obviously with what happened, do you have any kind of, let me ask you, Jeff, do you, and approaching any kind of a John Landis film at this point, do you have that kind of, stigma with it when you go into as one of his films at this point it's something i definitely think about but having grown up with his films and not really been aware of that you know i can at least draw on those associations you know i mean i i would say like i have more problems with like the sexual politics of the movies when i'm like actually watching them than i am like thinking about twilight zone you know but the more I get kind of involved in the film industry, the more that's a thing that people talk about. And so the more that's on my mind. And yeah, it's kind of it's kind of unavoidable. So that gets in the way. Yeah. And, and again, it's one of those things that not everyone has that baggage with it because some people can totally separate it. But there are some people I know that will not watch any more of his films because of that. Yeah. I, yeah. To each their own. I know. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. still going to watch it. You know, I mean, yeah, it's in the back of my mind. But, like, at the same time, I can separate art from artists, yeah. you know? Like, I'll still watch Road Warrior, you know? Um, question, Jeff. Uh, what, in the pantheon of werewolf movies, where does this one lie for you? Oh, man. I should have thought about this in advance, huh? <laughs> that's a toughie. It's a, that, it's a toughie. I mean, it's it's up there, but... It doesn't do the things that I want from a werewolf movie by and large. I think like Silver Bullet came up. That's more like, you know, the werewolf movie that I'm looking for. You know, the werewolf uh, killing the locals and we got to figure out who the werewolf is, you know, or like, yeah, that kind of that kind of stuff. That's that's more what I'm looking for. This is a very specific tone that you just don't get with other, you know, werewolf movies. I completely. I would even argue just the, the soundtrack itself being yeah. the fact that it's yeah. just nothing but moon-based songs. It's kind of rad. It's not. I'm not going to say ingenious, but it's just one of those, like you said, Jeff, it's an element that separates it from a lot of those other werewolf films that we see. And it's also like one of the only few werewolf comedies. Yeah. You know, because comedy and horror is very hard to do. And usually werewolf lycanthropy doesn't lend itself to humor no but yet this one does a lot of humor actually full moon high came out in 81 as well was that in 81 
if I'm remembering correctly, yeah. Oh, man. it was. I mean, because obviously we had the howling. Uh, we had Wolfen as well Wolfen. in '81. Yeah, because it was kind of a wealth of riches when it came to the Lycanthropy's tales. I've got to. I'm checking the, the the IMDb on that one. That was Full Moon High. Yeah, please full be right, Jeff. Come on. Hi, what do we got? 1981, Full ding, Moon ding, ding, High. Ding, 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 ding. Johnny, tell him what he's won. <laughs> oh, shit. You know who? Okay, Adam Arkin is in that. You know who else is in that? Ed Freegan McMahon. And hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's kind of, I need to see that so at Jeff, this point. You are correct, sir. <laughs> yes. So other thoughts on an American werewolf in London before we head on up to Canada. For a little My Bloody Valentine. I mean, it's it's a landmark for a reason. It's a movie that we look at as like paving the way for other movies. I mean, like when people talk about American Werewolf, they inevitably end up talking about the thing, you know? So like without this, we wouldn't have the thing. And there's a lot to be thankful for there. Here's a quick question for both of you. What are your thoughts on an American Werewolf in Paris? Guest first. <laughs> Guest first. I always had a big crush on Julie Delpy. And so, to my mind, that's good enough. <laughs> um, I mean, there are concepts in it that are really cool. The werewolves are, of course, the CG nightmare. Yeah. I like the idea of werewolves fighting uh, like in the subway. That's neat. But, I mean, then you see them. And it's like, eh. But if it... If it wasn't from that very specific era, it might have been a cool thing, you know, like a, a thing that we'd remember and talk about fondly. But the CG, man. Yeah. Parkour werewolves <laughs> to the extreme. It's yeah, I'm going to have to pass on that. I saw in the theater and I was like, this is extremely disappointing, especially the fact that it's already going on the name of American werewolf in some right in budapest right and so like and then you add the parkour werewolves and you try to add too broad a humor and i think that was one of the crutches uh, one of the things that was bad the jokes were too broad that it didn't hit and they're very 90s timely very 90s as opposed to something very timeless like this one yeah now i love julie delphi too but if i'm gonna go see a movie based on crushes i'm gonna go see cursed because that has Christina Ricci mm. and Shannon Elizabeth in it. So uh, so you were the person that actually supported it at the box office. I fucking saw in the theater, I did. <laughs> yeah, I actually did see that one in the theater, American Werewolf in Paris, and it's the only time I've watched it. Um, it was a little disappointing, um, and I will just leave it at that. Now, that being said, going to uh, from London to Canada, we have... Hey. My Bloody Valentine, yeah, we're never sorry about this. My Bloody Valentine, which has kind of, I would almost say, has seen a resurgence here as of late. Um, Jeff, what is your thoughts on this Canadian cult classic? Man, so like when I first saw it, I was probably 14 or 15. There was like the video store where you could rent five movies for five bucks for five days, right? Yep. So like that was my film education was just (laughs) renting everything. And it was in one of those batches, right? Like the one of five for five days. And I didn't like it because I was like, this is tame. Like, I don't like what's like, I didn't see the appeal of it. I'm like the like the setting's cool, but it's pretty tame when you when you're looking at slashers. But then when um, 
Mahalka discovered or like uncovered that footage mm-hmm. in like 2007, he actually came to Chicago with it and was at a theater here and did a screening and was like there to present it. Oh. And it was like, it was like the first presentation of it. And he was like, this is going to be on the upcoming Blu-ray or whatever and showed it. And I was like, what? Like, this is the movie I wanted. And so from that day, like I, my love of it's just grown. I watch it annually. Um, you know, it was, it was one of the ones I was looking forward to doing an episode of who the Al is with Al because Harry Warden. So like huge for me. And then the new, like the new Blu-ray is so killer because they like remastered all that footage and man. Yeah. I mean, it has the remake and a lot of people love it. Some people hate it. I'm sort of in the middle, I guess. But I went from really not liking it as a teenager to now I obsess over it. I have probably three or four shirts, right? Yeah. The obsession is understood. And I came to it kind of late in the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just one of those slashers I I knew of, but I'd never seen it. And I was lucky enough that... um, my first time was actually able to see it with the footage included. Mm. So I saw just the severity of the gore and everything they were going for. Because it's an entirely different film with that gore added to it because mm-hmm. it just adds that level of meanness and also just the, the cool creative kills, especially the Canadian crazy Ralph that keeps opening the door <laughs> laughing. Oh, <laughs> 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 get them! <laughs> when he gets dispatched... When the thing comes out of the eye, yeah, and right. then he's dragged. Yeah. We've, oh. we've been fortunate enough, we've hosted a couple screenings with the new footage, and a lot of people are seeing it for the first time, and the, those moments still get a reaction out of people, like a visceral, like, <gasps> where you can feel it, like the reveal of the body and the dryer. The dryer, the old lady, yeah. yeah. And she wasn't even a mean old lady no. either. It'd be different mm. if she was like... The mean school marm. But she's like, I want to have a party and celebrate and have a good time. And like, next thing you know, she's in the fucking spin cycle. It's like, God damn, this is a mean movie. Yeah, I was, I came into it late in the game too. I came to it maybe when I was about to, uh, 20s or mm-hmm. something. And I enjoyed it. And I was like, okay, it was, it's cool. It's no, like, say, Friday 13th or something, you know. But it wasn't until that gore cut. It wasn't until that extra gore was added where it was just like, this is an amazing fucking film. Well, let me ask, has anyone here ever actually engaged in a little dueling harmonica action in a junkyard while your best friend is cooking a TV dinner on an engine? Is you that know, just it happens a lot in Michigan where you know <laughs> I grew up, but like, you know, I the junkyard wasn't my scene, so uh, that I, is I, I abstained. That is still one of my favorite bits in that movie. It just adds to the charm because I it's like in Phantasm. I was gonna say it's like in Phantasm when Jody yeah. comes up with yeah. the guitar. I just love little bits of just spontaneous music where you can see Axel and TJ. They're just kind of have make trying to make that connection there. But truly, the one thing that I want in terms of a prequel is actually the further adventures of Howard and Hollis where you'll get Howard getting into a lot of shenanigans and then Hollis has to get him out of it. Quit uh, quit <laughs> fooling around. We got to get the girls out of here. Where's the blankets? And it is actually, it's Hollis that is my favorite of the film. I think probably the first time I saw it, there's just something about him that he's just so jovial. 
He's the one that's doing the bishop with the knife thing at the bar. Jean, mm-hmm. The nice Jean Shallot. Yeah, he, he, he totally, he, he wears a mustache well. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I absolutely love about this is not only the uh, group showering thing that I swear Verhoeven watched and was like, I'm going to put that in a, in a dystopian sci-fi movie, but the Canadian <laughs> Benny Hill music that plays when they go out of the shower getting to the cars. <laughs> the whole soundtrack is AM Gold and it's wonderful. It, and it's those little moments like that that I, to me, separate it from those other slashers. Because obviously in '81 we had a ton of them, but and how many people in those slasher movies get dispatched with hot dog water? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a fan of the boiled hot dog. Like, I, if you, I, you either got to grill it or throw it on a frying pan, man. That boiling, you grill it for, you boil it and then you grill it. Oh, is that the secret? Mm-hmm. Okay, apparently... It plumps them. Gets them juicy. I, see? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Secrets revealed. Secrets. Secrets. This is wiener the man... secrets. Oh, no, no, do not look for wiener secrets, folks. That's yeah, gonna... don't, don't Google that. You're not going to like what you come up with. It ain't going to be hot dogs. No. Your baloney's going to have a first name, and it's not going to be O-S-C-A-R, so... <laughs> it's going to be a watch list. Genius was actually the one that introduced me to cooking my tortillas. I've got a gr- gas grill, and actually... Warming them up and browning them over yeah. the gas grill on the blew my mind, man. Blew my mind. Mm-hmm. So you are you are my cuisine like gateway person at this point. <laughs> Boil your hot dogs and then grill them, and or even fry them, and then you, it's just because they've already plumped Gotta and they're already cooked, and they just cook even more and seal the juices in. Okay, question: Can you can you put a hot dog in an air fryer? Is that possible? Ooh. I mean, you could. I don't know if it would do anything yeah, yeah probably mummify worth, it. worth eating <laughs> well you could do like in the movie and cook a heart too this is true it would probably end up looking like the lady in the dryer poor, poor heart. <laughs> yeah it's poor not, old lady poor old it's, lady. but there are the it's just those little kind of moments though that really have always stood out to me um including the i'm sorry i'm so damn sorry yeah. i and i love that i just absolutely love it. it's just so unapologetically canadian all the Moosehead. I mm-hmm. feel like I've drank like a six-pack of Moosehead by the time I get through the entirety of My Bloody Valentine. It's incredible. It's just so Canadian. It does this weird balance of being extremely fun and lighthearted but- and then being very mean and scary. Some of the atmosphere in the mine alone, oh. like the all all the hanging suits, that's fucking terrifying. Oh, yeah. That was a great terrifying scene. And you know they're going to jump scare you, but and you're ready for it, but it still gets you. Absolutely. Well, and you Jeff, you even mentioned the the remake which I also watched for the first time this last year. Um watched it at home with the 3D glasses. <laughs> it wasn't bad. Per se. That would help. I didn't see it in 3D, so I felt like if I had, I would appreciate it more. But I haven't yet, so maybe I should. I feel like I need to, but it, you know what? Anytime you can get like Tom Atkins' mustache come at you in 3D, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not yeah. bad. But it was the thing that threw me off was just the gratuitous gratuitousness of the sex and the nudity, because the original My Bloody Valentine it's it's a chaste flick in terms of the sex and nudity. Which is something you would get, you know, I mean, look at all the slashers that came out in 81. I mean, top on the list there was the sex and nudity. But here, we didn't get it. Do you think that was maybe due to the tax shelter, potentially, uh, you know, coming into play with that? I don't know. I mean, 
Mahalka made a movie. Oh, I don't know when he made this one. He's got a movie called like Pinball Summer or something like that, that I think predates this. And it's kind of like a, you know, like a sex comedy mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, Boner like, Jam. Like Great and Clark. Yeah. Like Great and Clark's right. joysticks, but like with pinball. Right. <laughs> and, and I don't remember it. Like I, there's a lot of nudity in that. So like going into this, it does feel like if you're doing it there and not doing it here, why? And it, and it really does seem purposeful because he's spending so much time on the characters and like, mm-hmm. that's, that's the distinction between this and so many other slasher films is you care about the people, yeah. you know? And I mean, granted you got the guy who's, you know, um, snorting the drink and stuff and he might annoy a lot of viewers, but like you get one of those guys in every gang, you know, like they're always around. He's kind of the Canadian Shelley almost. Yeah, he is. Oh, not yeah. annoying. Not as annoying. No. Yeah. Not as annoying. You're I not didn't want say to see that die that bad, you know, but I think about, I think, yeah, it's not gratuitous, and they do spend a lot of time with the characters, and I think it's also a fact that these aren't, like, horny teens going off into the woods. These yeah. are everyday working-class people, and they're at their job, and they just want to have a nice Valentine's. There's no malice. There's no, hey, let's go around and fornicate and fuck. That happens down in the party, but it's a party. It's a party! So... But the fact that Harry Warden is like, they really have nowhere to go. It's not like they have a choice because you don't have to go to Crystal Lake, but you have to go to the mine. Yeah. So, yeah. And plus, it's always fun that it's the town urban legend, the town dark secret. There's that moment when the crazy Canadian Ralph is talking about Harry Warden. Don't don't crack wise, boy. You weren't there. You don't know. But there's a moment when Harry is wondering, sneaking around the town, and there's this one shadow shot of him just... And it just, it's one of those things that if I ever like walked across and I saw would terrify me because the specter of someone (laughs) creeping like that with a big old pickaxe, no thank you. That's, you know, walking away, getting out of the town, Valentine Bluff, no thank you. Um, You talked about the fact that how do you think Al would approach My Bloody Valentine, just given the specter of one Harry Warden? Is he familiar with the mining concept, you know, a little, has he seen Zoolander? Let's ask that. <laughs> <laughs> Merman. No, we did, we did our, um, we did our episode where I had him speculate on who he thought Harry Warden was. And he actually got pretty close, like, which is wild. Like he, he was pretty spot on in a number of places. Um, but he's, you know, he's always, Al, Al's really all about the monsters being kind of sympathetic so he likes the backstories of somebody did them wrong. Somebody did some horrible thing to them, you know? And so that's also, I mean, that is what happens to Harry Ward in, in the movie, you know, he was done wrong. And, and so Al's instinct just kind of put him on the right track, you know? I, I really can't wait for him to be able to see that for the, I, in fact, so many of those of the, who the Al is, I will you, and can you do like update episodes eventually on that? Because that's what I want to know, especially if he can like listen to what he thought to what it is and just to see how his mind is making those connections initially based on all the stuff that he's seen i love that i just love that yeah that's that's a lot of fun i mean we did the only one that i think we've done that with was critters but i think that was because we wanted to do a who the al is of critters but i also felt he was ready to watch it so i was like all right you do that episode and then you can watch it and then we'll do all the critters movies on the show so it was like that was the deal 
Perfect. Can't wait till Critters 2 then. I know. I can't wait for Critters when we all watch Critters 2. Hey, little buddies, come gather round. Yeah, this is gonna, <laughs> that's going to be yeah, awesome. No, we, yeah, we did. We did uh, I think the only one that we haven't done on the show is the like the Critters Attack. I think that's the only one we haven't done yet. Well, we we did uh, Critters three here actually. Oh, I should yeah, that's uh, in the the, uh, the into the mouth of Match Madness yes. next week. Actually, technically, we'll be competing, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, and of course, you can't talk my bloody Valentine without without talking about the end song, which to oh, this day oh, is so incredible, so amazing, and. Always, whenever we host it, it's like, stick around. Like, you want to listen and enjoy the song at the end. So is that one that's maybe on your, is that on your uh, Spotify playlist at all, Jeff? No, I don't really, I don't have a Spotify playlist, but it would be. It would. You know, that would, that would be the kind of thing. But it's like, this would be something where if I got, like, when our, our roommates, like, Jeff, we need to get a turntable, man. I'm like, all right, now I'm just going to spend so much money on horror movie soundtracks on vinyl. And like, that's one I would have to own. And like Halloween three. So they're like movies that I'm like already like you got like that would be right up there. Top of the list. And I do believe Waxwork does actually have a nice My Bloody Valentine uh, vinyl, which if I remember right, Gary Pullen did the cover art. Oh, nice. Yes. Yes. As and yeah, because I also have the the horror vinyls and i was actually just playing well it's not horror but i did pick up the soundtrack to i'm gonna get you sucker dirty mother watch your mouth which was it's not horror per se but still not too bad but i'm in the vein with you my friend it's dangerous so just don't get the turntable avoid the temptation altogether (laughs) i love the fact that it's a horror am gold it is it truly is it's It's all all right right with me well here's a question then because it battled uh, Madman, and in Madman, you get the song right away. The mm. whole lore. The campfire telling of the horror. Do you think My Bloody Valentine would be better with the ballad of Harry Warden maybe at the beginning or throughout the, the, the movie itself until at the very end? I don't know. I think like it works really well at the end because it's, we we get at the very end, you know, the reveal of, you know, who it actually is and everything. And so then there's like, this song revitalizes that myth mm-hmm. of Harry yes, Warden, yes. you know, that the, that the movie works to kind of dispel. And then the song brings it back. Yeah. And well, that's, that's kind of magical. And I think if the song were there the whole time, it wouldn't be as powerful at the end in terms of like making Harry Warden like a memorable slasher icon despite the fact that it's not really, uh, right. you know. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I think it works right where it is so well. Oh, I'm ag- I, I'm I agree. Total agreeance as I well, because I just love that thing. Now, obviously, we love both of these films quite mm-hmm. a bit. However, only one can advance into the next round. And here to show our work, we've got two bits of criteria that we're going to look at in the round of The Hateful Eight. And the first one is very abstract, and I always like to kind of get people's background on this, but... What we're going to do is we're going to create our own like definition or aesthetic of what horror was to us in the year of 1981, and based on that definition aesthetic, which of the two films fits it better. So I'm going to throw it out. Jeff, would you like to go ahead and get us started on this? Sure. Man, I did a lot of homework on this. <laughs> I, I practically wrote like a master's thesis. On, on the aesthetics, I like was typing up notes. Like, okay, I didn't see you your know. prospectus, my friend, um, so it's not going to count. <laughs> Get out of this bar with that smart talk. <laughs> There's 
my okay so my instinct right is like american werewolf should go all the way right like i mean you enter like thinking that and so i started you know doing my homework and i'm like okay it's important because we got the build up to the thing we've got you know rick baker we've got rob Botin, we've got all these guys in 81 you know laying the groundwork for what would become the most iconic horror movies like ever right and then you did have those few other werewolf flicks you know wolf and, and the howling and everything but american werewolf is real sleek it's a kind of a classy production it's got you know a bigger budget it's like almost six million dollars which is kind of nothing today but at the time for a horror movie real solid I mean, the, you know, it has a named director. It has known, like, known leads. Omer Bernstein did the freaking score for the thing. Yeah. So, like, like statistically, though, percentage-wise, far more of 1981's horror movies are gritty, gross, little, mean, dirty movies in so many slashers. I started to make a list, right? And I was, so... I had, you know, Howling Wolf and, you know, like running through a couple, but then I was like, oh man, you know, the slashers we've got, I mean, you got the burning, you've got little things like Final Exam, you know, Halloween 2, obviously, mm -hmm. I mean, Madman and The Prowler mm -hmm. and just so many. I, I think I ended up with a list of 20 and I was like, all right, I think I'm, I think I'm good there. <laughs> I think like I can stop with that. So I think to me, the aesthetic is mean and dirty and low budget you know mm -hmm. and I, even going back to you know uh, the beyond right like i mean fulci put out three freaking movies in 1981 yeah crazy and i mean nobody makes mean gross dirty movies like fulci made mean gross dirty movies right so with that in mind of the two of them the one that is mean gross dirty small budget little indie picture with like no names in it, riding on the coattails of Friday the 13th from 1980. It's, it's got to be my bloody Valentine. I, I, Based on your definition, my friend, that is truly showing your work. Excellent work, excellent work. Genius, what are you thinking? I got 100% agree with him. Um, when you think of the 80s, especially early 80s, you think of dirty, gritty slashers. And yeah, in 81, there was three werewolf movies, right, competing against each other. But there was at least a dozen and a half slasher films. You think of slashers when you think of the 80s. You think of, even though it's not, you think of the gratuitous. You think of the, the bloody. You think of the gory. And with a name like My Bloody Valentine, <laughs> you know that's going to be some sort of slasher in the vein of Halloween, in the vein of Friday the 13th, in the vein of The Burning. So for aesthetic-wise, I got to go with My Bloody. And I don't want to say I'm hopping on this uh, this train here, but yeah, I mean, there were a slew of slashers. And because I think the blueprint was out there that they are they didn't cost a lot to make, and based on the fact that here in 1980 we had Friday the 13th that kind of opened up the floodgates for those, a lot of them are going to make money for you. So it's kind of a no-brainer, regardless if you're a big studio or a struggling independent, like if you put together the nudity, the gore, um, you know, just the grittiness that you're going to probably make some money. And then on top of that, you know, again, with the Canadian tax shelters laws that came about, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in 81, I mean, I think we actually got like uh, my um, happy birthday to me. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure was, you know, yep. filmed in Canada. So based on that, again, just that slew, 
you can't, you have to say My Bloody Valentine just because it fit totally what was going on in 1981. Now, that being said, obviously we're giving a lot of love to these films, you know, 40 years from when they were released. So the question is, which of these two is the horror community still going to be talking about 40 years later? Jeff, I'm going to throw this one out to you, my friend. Man, I'll tell you right now, before I even start talking, my answer for who the winner is for this is an ellipses and a question mark. <laughs> so I'm like, Jeff, you got to convince yourself as you go here. <laughs> Cause I, here's what I run into. Okay. When we, we look at American werewolf in London, the things that we've talked about today are the things that we've always been talking about. And it's a film that, I mean, apart from maybe if we get the one scene of the homeless people being, you know, killed by the werewolf really gory, it's unlikely we're going to see some, you know, revitalized, recontextualized version of that. And so the conversation that we're having like today in 2021 about American Werewolf in London is the same conversation, you know, I was having about the movie when I was 14, you know, like this it's the same conversation and it's got to the point I feel when somebody brings up American werewolf in London, the conversation goes like this. Oh, oh man, the transformation, right? Like, and I mean, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have the thing and you just shorthand it and then everybody moves on. So I don't even know if, like, I don't know if that constitutes talking about the movie anymore. Like if, if the same talking points are the same ones that we're always going to bring up, are we still talking about it? Or are we just rehashing the same shit we've already said? I don't know. At the same time, then we've got today My Bloody Valentine, which like we talked about has found this resurgence, you know, like the popularity has snowballed. And it's a movie that I think uh, people are now more than ever like, well, can we get a sequel? Mm -hmm. Like, can we do that now? And there's the remake and they found the, the gore footage to recontextualize it. But is that enough for us to still be talking about it in 40 years? And I know I will be, right? Like, I think that of the two of them, the only one I'll still be watching annually 40 years from now is My Bloody Valentine. Mm -hmm. <sighs> oh, my God. Guys, I don't know. It, this um, is why it's mad. It, it really is. I thought, like, once I started just putting it all out there, like, I'd figure it out. I don't know. This this is, is why it, we get buyer's remorse in the worst way here, right? Oh. Okay, so let's let's talk this out, okay? Okay. When we say what movie will we still be talking about in 40 years? Do we mean like the royal we or like specifically we? The royal I'm going to say the royal we. royal we, the genuine yeah. horror community. Yes. <sighs> that includes normies. <laughs> I mean, that's true, right? And and My Bloody Valentine is not a movie that normies are going to watch. And American Werewolf in London is something that you could sit somebody down as like a, hey, you don't watch horror movies. Look at this. Mm -hmm. And they can laugh and they can mm -hmm. be like, wow, and it had a werewolf and, and it's kind of a gateway thing. So I think in 40 years time, we could still be using it as that. And damn it, as much as I want to say My Bloody Valentine, I think I'm going to say American Werewolf in London. Hey. Yeah. It again, wonderfully well thought out, complex answer to that because it is. I totally get. I'm getting a lot of cognitive dissonance myself on this one. So, 
We've got another vote there for uh, American Werewolf. Genius, what are you thinking? I think the reason why we're talking about My Bloody now is because of the gore cut. It's because of the lost footage. If all that stuff wasn't there, I don't think we would be talking about it. And even though it does have all the gore and stuff, that's still one of those underseen slashers. People are going to gravitate to the Michael Myers, the Freddies, and the Jasons, but not. It's not until like lower level are you going to be the Harry Wardens, the Madman Mars, mm-hmm. and then and the Cropsies. So I think people are not enough. People are already talking about it right now, and I think there's going to be more, but not enough compared to American Werewolf in London because it's even if they add a special 4K edition it's not that anything's added it's just that it's cleaned up a mm-hmm. little bit we're still going to have these conversations it's still going to be one of those movies that normies can watch if you go to anybody right now and say hey which one do you like better my bloody valentine or american werewolf in london they're probably going to say like well i haven't seen my bloody valentine but i've seen american werewolf and so i think because of that we're going to be talking about American Werewolf in London way more because if we're going to talk about slashers from the 80s. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Jason. We're going to talk about Michael. If we talk about werewolf movies from the 80s, we're going to be talking about American Werewolf. So I'm going to go with American Werewolf. Very well done, my friend. And this one was tough because you both have brought up wonderful points about why these films have persevered 40 years from now, why they've been able to you know, go to the top tier of these movies that we're talking about. And it's the charm of both of these movies where, you know, it's uh, My Bloody has the Canadian charm. Um, American Werewolf has just the the stiff upper lip kind of charm. Uh, both maybe can be considered international horror, potentially, maybe, because, mm-hmm. you know, American yeah, L- London, Werewolf was... Canada. But it's because of the fact, I think, is the um, versatility of an American Werewolf in London that... That's and I've seen that I think for a lot of normies where they haven't seen it but they've heard of it and they know the importance of the werewolf scene and like you said Jeff it's because of this that we got the thing and that this movie is a springboard for that but it's also one even if it's springboarding into something that board is important and that's something that I think will always just persevere and so because of that I think we will be talking about all of these elements of an American werewolf in London 40 years from now which Brings us to a conundrum because we have a tie. (laughs) Now, when we have a tiebreaker, we go to a familiar cover of a familiar magazine. On the cover of the old thing, go, gonna buy one copy for my mother. Gonna see some movies on Shutter. Gonna see my gruesome face on the cover of the old thing, go. And if we look online, only one of these films actually did get the cover of the almighty Fangoria, and because of that, joining the round of the Frightful Four in the year of 1981... I'm on bated breath. An American werewolf in London bites and claws its way. I mean, it had to, right? I was... I was... I rooted so hard for my bloody Valentine, and, and and like, just knowing how this second part was gonna go, part of me was like, just do it, Jeff. Just, Just push it into the... But, like, I... Man, I can't lie. I can't lie to you guys. But, you no, know, and we, we pre- that's why we brought you in, because we understood anyone that kicks, gets kicked out of a bar for discussing communication theory, <laughs> that's exactly the person we want in Into the Mouth of March bar, Madness. A werewolf bar, nonetheless. Yeah. A werewolf yeah. bar. And you know, it's great, because I was looking up, and I was like, oh, please, my bloody Pangoria. Come on, give me some Harry Warden. Give me some... 
I didn't. Oh. It didn't even show up on like the sidebar, that's which is ridiculous. a shummer. I know. You think that it would even show up on the side? I, because if a... that happened, we'd still have another tie, and we'd have to go to music. Oh, and we don't. That'd be, Ooh, that'd be hard music. too. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? As, this is a good goddamn battle. Well, and Jet, the, the fact that my bloody made it this far, I think, is a testament to the fact that it is getting the resurgence. It is getting the appreciation it deserves. But let's face it. I mean, American Werewolf in London. I don't feel bad with that representing no, the year of 1981. Either. I don't have buyer's remorse. No. Not absolutely. So, dude, thank you so much. Jet. This was fan freaking tastic. Mm-hmm. This was why I love bringing you in here. Um, just knowing that we're going to get some thoughtful answers, and especially built around the fact that both of these movies really meant a lot to you, just in your yeah. formative years, and that's what I love with horror genre and all that. It's just what it what it makes us today, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. So again, where can our listeners and, and the fact that you're bringing another generation oh, of yeah, awesome oh. horror fans as well, because I have a feeling forty years from now we're going to be talking to Al. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I, He'll be I, kidding, getting kicked out of his own werewolf bars werewolf by that right? Oh, I cannot wait for that. Now, of course, where can our listeners listen to all that kind of uh, good shenanigans with you and Al there, Jeff? Yeah, Cadavercast, a father-son monster movie podcast is on uh, you know Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and Stitcher and wherever else. And if it's not, yell at me online somewhere and well, I'll fix it. Small, small letters, not all caps, ladies and gentlemen. Let's uh, you know, employ good etiquette here. <laughs> so, what, what movie from the year of nineteen ninety one will be joining an American Werewolf in London in the round of the Frightful Four? Mm. All you have to do is wait until next week to find out. And until that time, this is Greg D. I'm Genius McGee, and we'll see you in your dreams. Oh.